the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, June 11, 1946. I'm Sally Helm. Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in rural Pennsylvania is surrounded by rolling fields of farmland, the kind of fields where a man can't hide. But Bayard Rustin doesn't have to hide. He's leaving prison today as a free man. And in any case, Bayard Rustin is not the hiding type. He was incarcerated in the first place because he refused to hide his beliefs. Even with World War II raging and patriotic fervor at its peak, Rustin refused to fight. He'd grown up a Quaker in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and had been a pacifist since he was a child. That made him a conscientious objector, not just to World War II, but to every war. For this, he'd been arrested, convicted, and sent to federal prison. From the beginning, prison officials haven't known quite what to make of Rustin. When he first arrives, they note in his file, it is believed that this inmate will continue to bring up racial problems in this institution, as has been his practice before being committed here. His adjustment in this institution is doubtful. As time goes on, Rustin's file turns up many signs that, indeed, he does continue to bring up problems in the prison. He's disciplined for getting fellow inmates to protest things like the state of medical care, the policies on mail, the fact that the cafeterias are segregated. You can feel in the record that the prison officials are just no match for him. They write that one day at lunch, he refused to line up with the other Black inmates, instead started to deliver an oration on his opinions of segregation, etc. He was told to line up as required, but this he refused to do. Eventually, they transfer Rustin to the lower security farm camp and finally release him. But even at this last moment, Rustin is defiant. He won't agree to any travel restrictions. He's gotten a job with an interfaith peace group and he'll need to move around. And he won't agree to wear a prison-issued suit. When he steps out into those wide Pennsylvania fields, the clothes that he's wearing are his. Today, Bayard Rustin. What made Rustin so confident he could force fundamental change, especially knowing that powerful people were digging around in his personal life to ruin him? And by hearing from his partner, we'll discover how a man who'd been married for most of his life to a cause found love. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Bayard Rustin completes his two-year stint in the penitentiary in 1946. And when he gets out, he has something new in common with a man he's long admired, Mahatma Gandhi. 
Both men have recently spent two years in prison for acting on their beliefs. Rustin for his personal commitment to pacifism, and Gandhi for leading a political movement built on civil disobedience, challenging 90 years of British imperial rule in India to gain independence. John D'Amelio has written a biography of Rustin. He told us, Rustin is deeply interested in Gandhi's movement. So here is a man of color in New York City reading about a man of color on the other side of the globe who is challenging the most powerful empire on the planet at that point, the British Empire. And this led him to explore and embrace active nonviolence as a form of political organizing and social change. Rustin himself is a gifted political organizer. He protests segregation with acts of civil disobedience. He works as a strategist for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a pioneering Black union. And he speaks widely on pacifism and nonviolence. He's impressed by the way Gandhi is rallying thousands to his cause and earning worldwide media coverage. It suggests to Rustin the possibilities of a tactic called active nonviolent resistance. Active, that's the key. You could live a life of what we might think of as passive nonviolence, in which you yourself never engage in a violent act or never participate in a war. The active part involves Gandhi and his movement confronting their oppressors through marches and boycotts and acts of civil disobedience. The nonviolent part is refusing to attack or kill people in the process. It goes far beyond an individual moral choice, and it's working. Rustin wonders, what's to stop me from doing that? It offered the greatest possibilities If you believe in nonviolence and you're facing one nation that is building up the largest defense establishment, including nuclear weapons, that the world has ever seen, and two, engages in racial segregation and has racial hierarchies embedded into law and everyday life around the country, What are you supposed to do to challenge that unless you're willing to take on what he would describe as active nonviolent resistance? It's now late 1948. Rustin has become so well-known as an organizer and a speaker on nonviolence that Gandhi invites him to India. He asks Rustin to take part in an international conference scheduled for the following year. But... Before it can be held, Gandhi is killed by a Hindu nationalist assassin. The news is devastating to India, to believers in nonviolence, and to Rustin. In a letter, he praises Gandhi as an angelic troublemaker. It might sound like he's calling Gandhi an otherworldly figure, or saying that only a saint could use nonviolence to bring about change. But Rustin has come to believe the opposite that nonviolent resistance only works when ordinary people do it together. The only weapon we have is our bodies, he writes, and we need to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. That conference in India, it still happens, and Rustin attends. 
He never meets Gandhi directly, but he does meet many of the central figures in the Indian independence movement. At first, Rustin's Indian hosts have a hard time grasping how the oppressive conditions that they face under imperial rule compare to the American Jim Crow South. Rustin has lots of stories that can help make it clear. Stories like the one that'll happen when he returns from this trip and spends 22 days on a chain gang after trying to peacefully integrate a public bus. One morning, he tries to impress a prison guard by starting work early. The guard says, stop, you bastard, and presses a revolver to Rustin's head. Rustin stays calm and no harm comes to him. When he later tells this story in speeches, Rustin will make clear that, crucially, he didn't give up on the guard. That's a key part of Gandhian nonviolence. Rustin treats the guard with respect, and after a while, the guard begins responding in kind, even offers Rustin cigarettes and soda. Rustin's stories have a huge impact on audiences in India. He speaks widely about pacifism and nonviolence. Sometimes he even sings. Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel way in the middle of the air. And the bigger wheel run by faith and the little wheel run by the grace of God. It's a wheel in a wheel way in the middle of the air. Oh, watch my brother how you walk on cross way in the middle of the air. Your foot might slip and so be lost way in the middle of the air. That's a rare recording of the kind of song that Rustin sang on this trip, a spiritual about loss and overcoming. Word spreads about this American visitor, Bayard Rustin. For the rest of his time in India, he has more speaking invitations than he can accept. He also learns more from his hosts about the philosophy and the spirituality of nonviolence, the commitment to do no harm to any other living thing. When Rustin returns to the States, he becomes somebody who experiments in using nonviolence as a way of challenging the government's policies around warfare and uh, nuclear arms, and especially government policy around racial hierarchy and racial segregation. By 1955, Rustin has a nationwide network of contacts. From them, he starts hearing about a young preacher in the South who is directly confronting racist laws and customs. This is something Rustin has been dreaming would happen for over a decade, that you have a whole community of African-Americans united together. And so Rustin makes his way down to Montgomery. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is leading a boycott of the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama. And Rustin arranges a meeting. He wants to speak to King about widening the goals of this emerging civil rights movement. Make it about equal access, not just to buses, but to restaurants, barbershops, hospitals, schools. In fact, to all of American life. Rustin played a key role in developing Dr. King's stature as a national leader rather than simply a local minister in an Alabama city. When Rustin arrives, the scene is tense. Night riders have recently firebombed King's home. Now, armed guards stand outside. 
Inside, when Rustin starts to sit down, someone half-jokingly says, wait, couple of guns in that chair. You don't want to shoot yourself. Rustin will later write, when I got to Montgomery, Dr. King had very limited notions about how a nonviolent protest should be carried out. So he and King step aside for a private talk. Rustin begins to explain to him in step-by-step, piece-by-piece ways, the principles of active resistance. And Dr. King embraces it completely. And not only that, Rustin says to King, this has to be understood as not just a Montgomery movement. Instead, he urges King, go national with the Campaign for Civil Rights and root it in nonviolence. He tells King that he's been traveling the country for years, speaking to countless audiences, many of them in the Black community. He says, no situation in America has created so much interest among Negroes as the Gandhian proposals for India's freedom. King listens. Without exaggeration, you could claim that Bayard Rustin was more responsible than anyone for bringing Gandhian nonviolence into the heart of the civil rights movement in the United States. Some white residents of Montgomery respond to the boycott with violence. Snipers fire into buses. Members of the Ku Klux Klan bomb black churches. Specialists have to defuse a bomb that was left at Martin Luther King's door. But King's followers do not respond in kind. Instead, they fight in court and keep walking or carpooling or hitchhiking to get where they need to go. After little more than a year, the boycott ends in victory. A federal court rules that Montgomery's segregated bus system is unconstitutional. The movement's success launches a wave of nonviolent protest across the country. Sit-ins are exploding throughout the South. 1961 is the Freedom Ride and another explosion of demonstrations. The civil rights movement is growing at a pace and with visibility like it has never had before. Now it's early July, 1963. Rustin has joined Martin Luther King in the top ranks of the civil rights movement. The leadership feels that now is the time to move forward on a plan for a show of strength a national demonstration that will bring people from every state to Washington, D.C. They decide to hold the march in late August. That is just seven weeks away. But who will wrangle all the logistics, from speeches to sound system, from permits to porta-potties? There is a clear choice. King turns to the most gifted organizer he knows, Bayard Rustin. He says... A lot is riding on this, and you're in charge. Rustin rolls up his sleeves. It's a level of organizing. It's hard for us to understand in the new technological world that we live in today. But it's a comment on Rustin's networks and his ability to be absolutely organized to keep track of everything through telephone calls, through letters, through attending meetings, traveling to other cities to spread the word. 
And he had some key assistants, obviously. He has the support of all of the other organizations that are endorsing a march. And the word gets out there. The word also reaches a senator from South Carolina, Strom Thurmond. When Thurmond hears about the march, he assigns his staff to gather information on the lead organizer, including on his personal life, especially on his personal life. Thurmond is a rabid segregationist. He'll do what it takes to undermine this show of movement strength. His staff goes off to rifle through the life of Bayard Rustin and return with what they've found. On August 13th, Strom Thurmond takes to the floor of the U.S. Senate to make a statement for the record. Bayard Rustin, he says, is a sex pervert. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Bayard Rustin is not a quote-unquote sex pervert. What Strom Thurmond is really accusing him of is being gay. He attacked me as a homosexual, Rustin later said in an interview, which, of course, I was. As a boy, Rustin was raised by his grandmother, Julia. She was a Quaker and a loving woman who accepted him unconditionally. Julia always gave Bayard the message that he needed to be true to himself. And Bayard talked to her as a teenager and a young man about his special caring for men. And Julia basically told him, you have to be yourself. You have to be true to yourself. That's John D'Amelio again. By the accounts of those who knew Rustin, he's comfortable with his sexuality and doesn't try to hide it. Yet, he's not what we might call out. He wasn't politically gay, but he didn't pretend to be heterosexual. And these were the decades that were the worst time to be an LGBTQ person in the United States. D'Amelio says that in 1963, being out is barely an option for Rustin. Homophobia is rampant. And the mere fact of being gay can be weaponized to blackmail someone or destroy their reputation. Which is what Strom Thurmond is trying to do, just weeks before the March on Washington. Rustin has been persecuted before for having sex with men, even arrested. He was jailed in Los Angeles and made to register as a sex offender. When word of the incident got around in peace movement circles back in the 50s, Rustin had to leave his job. But this vicious speech by Strom Thurmond, this is a whole new level of trouble. Thurmond not only charges Rustin with lewdness, he assails Rustin's past association with communism. Thurmond is trying to convince the public that Rustin is dangerous, 
untrustworthy, perverse. And in the process, he's trying to bring down the upcoming march. Thurman, who has been fed information about Rustin by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, stands on the floor of the United States Senate and denounces the organizer of the March on Washington as a sexual pervert and puts information about Rustin into the congressional record. At this point, Bayard is already known and referred to as Mr. March on Washington. And so if civil rights leaders accept what Thurmond is saying, they're endangering the entire mobilization effort. Some in leadership feel strongly that the march matters more than its organizer and that Rustin must step aside. Rustin himself makes no public statement at the time, so it's hard to know exactly how he's feeling. But years later, he opens up to his partner, Walter Nagel. He found it depressing. He found it sad. It made him sad. The sadness had to do with, I think, the the personal relationships that were involved, the people who made these decisions to push him aside or to marginalize him. Still, Rustin has always placed the cause before himself. His focus was always, you know, what's good for the movement? What good, what's going to push us forward? And even if it means my stepping aside, I will do that. But it doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't hurt by it. But then, according to John D'Amelio, something unexpected happens. A. Philip Randolph comes to Rustin's defense. He's a powerful union leader and a lion of the civil rights movement. And he stands up in support of Rustin in a way that others have not before. Unlike in the previous years, where Rustin's sexual identity was used to move him off to the side, the key leaders, organizational leaders in the civil rights movement with A. Philip Randolph have a press conference in which they openly proclaim their support for Bayard Rustin as the chief organizer of the march. And it really is uh, an important moment. Uh, It doesn't eliminate the personal prejudices that different people in the movement might have towards Rustin because he's gay and this is 1963, but it no longer sidelined Bayard in terms of being a key person in this growing movement. Rustin continues organizing the March on Washington. Now all he has to do is make sure it's not a flop. In 1963, there's no great way to know in advance how many people will be attending your large event. You just put the word out far and wide and hold your breath. On the morning of August 28th, dawn breaks hot and humid. You could describe it as a day of high tension. The press asks him, what are you expecting? Bayard looks at some paper that he's holding in his hand, which has nothing to do with the question, and and basically says, oh, everything is fine. People will be coming. Now, he just has to wait 
and see if that's true. He had no way of knowing whether this was going to be the success that it was. And then... As the morning develops, the buses pour in, the cars pour in, uh, people get off trains and the public transportation in the greater D.C. area. They are all gathering at the mall, ready for this dramatic event. It's clear that history will be made this day. And then, you know, Rustin is on the podium. As one of the scheduled speakers. And he's introduced by the actor and activist Ossie Davis. Bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. He's there in front of the memorial with Dr. King and John Lewis and the other speakers. Ladies and gentlemen. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it includes public accommodation, decent housing, integrated education, FAPC and the right to vote. What do you say? Typical for him, Rustin's speech is a list of practical demands. But of course, it's another speech that day is really remembered for, when Martin Luther King stands before 250,000 people and says, I have a dream. It's the largest demonstration in America up to that time. Its success belongs to all the people who made sacrifices to be there, to prove that civil rights was a mass popular movement, one that wouldn't be denied. But Rustin deserves some personal credit too. And another thing the march accomplished? It made him famous. Besides the success of the march itself as an event, It also gives Rustin himself uh, a level of visibility that he never had before because the following week, Life magazine, which is a weekly magazine that circulates throughout the country during these years uh, and that people all over the United States read. Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph together are a full-page cover of the magazine. In a typical episode of our show, we'd start to wrap things up here. We'd say that Bayard Rustin lived 24 more years and had many more organizing successes. He spoke out against segregation, colonialism, nuclear proliferation. When he died in 1987 at the age of 75, He was hailed far and wide for his work. But bear with us a moment longer. We want to tell you about an unusually warm April day in 1977. The day he found love. Tell me about the moment when you first encountered Bayard Rustin in New York on that corner. What happened? We're talking 45 years ago last week. This is Walter Nagel again. 
I was on my way to a newsstand in Times Square where they sold out-of-town newspapers. And I was going there to pick up a San Francisco Chronicle wearing a pair of uh, white bell bottoms, which, of course, one never wears white before Labor Day, as we know, but I thought I looked pretty nice uh, to the degree that I've ever allowed myself to think that. And I was just waiting on the corner, turned to my side, and there was this very handsome, tall, distinguished-looking, very well-dressed in a nice suit with a nice hat man. And he looked at me, and we, you know, lightning struck. It was just one of those moments. Wow. What do you mean? What did that feel like? Well, I mean, it was exciting. I, I mean, the physical type, obviously, we're talking about that. We weren't standing on the corner talking philosophy. And that came later, of course. He had a wonderful smile, very engaging, very warm, introduced himself, very friendly. And so, you know, what was not to like? What did the two of you talk about and connect over on that first date? Did you just walk off together on your first date right then and there from the street corner? No, I went and got the newspaper. I was on a mission. (laughs) (laughs) Nagel wasn't buying the Chronicle on a whim. He was planning to move to San Francisco. He wanted to look at apartments, jobs. But that plan was about to change. His life was about to change. What I loved about him most was his tremendous openness, his tremendous ability to relate to people at their level, whoever it was. Bard was somebody that was very genuine, very sincere, very gentle and and very loving. I know very often the public footage of him, you see him speaking at a demonstration and waving his arm or pointing his finger, and he comes across as as pretty fierce. But those people that really knew him and worked with him knew him as someone who was very giving, very generous. Nagel and Rustin fall in love. They move in together and remain together until Rustin's death a few days shy of the 24th anniversary of the March on Washington. I wonder, like, when Bayard did die, you know, you were grieving, people around him were grieving... Did, did you sort of feel his impact or legacy anew in any way at that moment after he had died? I, I was probably a little surprised at the amount of attention that his death generated in the press and on the news. I was delighted. I was perfectly happy about it. But, you know, it's kind of a, a weird feeling when you when someone you love dies and you pick up the New York Times and the next day, kind of this surreal kind of thing. But I felt that he certainly deserved that attention. The White House thought Bayard Rustin deserved attention, too. In 2013, quite recently, you accepted the the Presidential Medal of Freedom on Bayard's behalf. It was, you know, posthumously awarded to him, partly because of this work in the March on Washington and the other work that he did. I'm curious what that was like for you to accept that award on his behalf. It was very exciting, I have to admit. I'm not somebody who was easily thrilled or easily excited, but it was important. It was important that Bard be given the award because he, again, he had been somewhat marginalized. Dr. King, of course, John Lewis, they had all been given the Medal of Freedom. And Bard, who was the man that really made it happen, again, had not been given one. What do you think he might have said if he had been able to accept that award? 
he would have been very grateful, but he would have started talking about, well, what's the next step here? What do we need to do next to fulfill the promise of the March on Washington? Which, you know, those, those promises have not all been fulfilled. He would not rest on his laurels, if you will, because he was somebody that believed that the struggle for equality is never a done deal. It's never a final victory. You have to be vigilant and you have to be ready to go back and uh, continue the fight. When this story began, Bayard Rustin was in his mid-30s, walking out of prison with little more than the clothes on his back. He'd been made to suffer for his race and for his beliefs many times by then, and for who he loved. This story ends in 2013, when Rustin is posthumously awarded America's highest civilian award. Accepting on his behalf is his long-term partner, Walter Nagel. And the man who hands him the award is the nation's first Black president, Barack Obama. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please send us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We are reading and listening, and we would really love to hear from you, so please reach out. Special thanks to our guests, Walter Nagel, the current executor of Bayard Rustin's estate and his partner, and Professor John D'Amelio of the University of Illinois, Chicago, author of Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. Remember, that is Rustin himself singing. Thank you so much to Walter Nagel for sharing this rare recording. Little wheel run by the grace of God, it's a wheel in a wheel, way in the middle of the air. This episode was produced by Morgan Givens, sound designed by Brian Flood, and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>